0: morning, everyone. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Foolishness would then be the opposite of that, which we saw last week. Foolishness is incorrectly or rejected biblical knowledge. Someone who lives contrary to what God has laid out in his word and how we are to relate for him. Now, if we've seen anything through the book of Isaiah, and we only have two more messages in Isaiah left, chapter 11, Uh, we only have two chapters left in Ecclesiastes, this week we're looking at chapter 11, next week we look at chapter 12, and then we'll be done with this particular series. And one of the things that I think um, might frustrate us with a series through a book like Ecclesiastes is its depressing tone, week in and week out pretty much that everything you do and strive for to accomplish will one day be forgotten. No one will know you existed. No one will care about what you've done or what you didn't do. They will not even remember your name. And when they pass your gravestone in the graveyard, they'll go, wow, I wonder what it was like 200 years ago. Who was that? And that can become quite depressing to the point where Solomon says, that's why without God, life is meaningless. Meaning it is useless to strive for greatness and exceptionalism in this life without God, because in the end, it becomes dust. It becomes nothing. And you can come with a response to that, well, then nothing I do really matters. I might as well just eat, drink, and dance and live life to its fullest because there's nothing else for me except this moment in space and time for a small, limited, vapor amount of years. I might as well live it up. But Scripture paints a very different perspective and a different response to the meaningless of life, that life just goes through cycle after cycle after cycle, and the same things happen after generation after generation after generation. Scripture says don't give up, but you have a response in God, in Christ. And one of those responses, especially tied to what Solomon has been saying in Ecclesiastes, is what to do with your stuff. If everything is going to turn to dust one day, If you cannot take it with you, and you can't, what are you supposed to do then with the labors of your hand? Do you just squander it? Do you just waste it? Do you hoard it? Do you make sure you have enough for the next day? Well, guess what? You may not have a next day as we saw last week in Luke chapter 12. You may not have a next minute or a next breath. So what do you do with some of the stuff you have? Well, the Christian knows exactly what to do with it, right? What do we do with it? It's God's, right, first and foremost? What he has, what we have, it's God's gift to us. And so we live a life of generosity. And for a moment at the beginning of chapter 11, Solomon makes this connection of generosity, and he does it in a way that only Solomon can do, and then he moves on to a several other Important themes in the chapter, in chapter 11. He moves from generosity to the certainties of life, because there are some things that are certain in life that we can count on. And I'm not talking about death and taxes. Okay, we already know that those are certainties in life. But certainties from Solomon's perspective, from the years and years and years of what he has seen as life under the sun. Then he moves to uncertainty. There's also a lot of uncertainty in life. And then he moves on, lastly, to statements about reality. What has he really seen through the experience of his unimaginable wealth and everything that he's been able to accomplish in life? It boils down to a few things he knows he's responsible for. Well, we're going to look, first of all, in the first couple verses about generosity and in chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1 and 2, Solomon presents generosity like this. He says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even eight, for you do not know what disasters may happen on earth. Now, one thing, I haven't done this a lot, but I've done this a couple times. You feed ducks or birds. Uh, with, with bread in a park, and, and those are beautiful scenes in and movies and, and romance movies. Um, but in reality, when you throw bread down in a park, and the birds come and get it, how long do you think that bread really lasts? It's gone, right? Every movie I see, the ducks just swarm to it, the, the birds swarm to that feeding that you're doing in the park. They eat it rather quickly. But here in Solomon's perspective, you have thrown so much bread Cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. You've cast so much onto the waters that after many days, it's still there. That is a sign of immense generosity, that you are giving so much, not a single portion, but as he says in the next verse, give a portion of seven or even eight. You do not know what disasters may happen on the earth. You're right, Solomon. If I am a person of generosity, giving to the point where normally it'd all be gone the next day, but it's still there after many days, I've given so much, and I don't give a single portion, but I give seven or eight portions because I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I have what I have now, so I give. That is the whole spirit of what Christ has done to us. Giving, 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 giving. Till from our perspective, he has no more to give because he's given everything, including his life. Solomon says that is one response to the message that life seems meaningless at times and that it seems just like a cycle of events that you have no control over. Well, when God has given, he requires of us to give greatly with immense generosity. Because as he says at the end of that verse 2, for you know not what disaster may happen On the earth, you may hoard it, you may keep it, it may be building up in your retirement account, and I know there's a need to plan for the future. God is not discounting that, but God is discounting hoarding and fearing what will happen. He does discount that, and He dismisses it entirely as an attribute of the Christian life to worry and fear, so much so that in the future it cripples you to be generous. Paul has something pretty wonderful to say about generosity, especially in the book of 2 Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through verse 9, he says the following The point is this. He's had some instructions to the church because the church has had in Corinth some really major problems. It was not a good church or a perfect church by any means. And so he has a lot of instruction and correction to give them. And he has this correction to give them as well in chapter 9. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Just a general principle. If you are a person who gives and is not attached God says then, whether you have a little or a lot, it's really not going to matter to you because you're going to live life to the fullest and it's going to be an enjoyable life without worry or fear about what you have and what you don't have. But if you are a miser and you hide it and you hold on to it and your hope is in what you have in your pocket and you are not a person who gives in generosity without fear of the future, then don't be surprised if what you had in your pocket disappears, its value is diminished, and you have no confidence in that, because God wants us to have confidence in Him. Not stuff, not youth, not health, not beauty, not even life, not have confidence in stuff, but to have confidence in Him and Him alone. So whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, each one must give as, his, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and in all times, you may abound in every good work, for it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Why can you be a cheerful giver? Why are you able to give without reluctance? Why are you able to give without fear of what the future may bring? It is because God... In that giving, you are demonstrating 100% before him, not before others, because God elsewhere tells us that we should not be one of those who highlights our giving and wants pats on the backs and wants a special statue or a special stained glass window in your memory. No! He wants you to be so giving that anyone who looked into your life would go, How do you deal with maybe not having anything for tomorrow? See, I'm not worried about that. God's grace is all-sufficient, all-necessary. It abounds with me. Having sufficiency in all things at all times that you may abound in every good work. Giving is not a ruled requirement that you have as a Christian. Giving is a joyous act of worship, demonstrating that you trust solely in God's providence in your life and that in doing so, you are demonstrating the abounding grace of God because you're not tied to the stuff. You're tied and bound to the blood of Christ, to his work, to his kingship, to his majesty, to his kingdom. Which is far more lasting? Which is far more rewarding? Which is far more satisfying? The joys of heavenly riches or the pocket filled with change? Which takes you into eternity with peace? Which one? Which one takes you into a trial with joy? Which one takes you into stress with confidence in God? his riches, he does, his stuff, his kingdom. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give, don't tithe, don't support God's work because you are compelled to, because you're guilted into it. Always give because you want to demonstrate before him your confidence that he takes care of you. If you feel that you are too tied to the worldly things, money and stuff, take the leap. Demonstrate to God, I want to be more confident in you, because you do not change. My circumstances change, and the world changes every single day. But the one constant is God's love for you. And he's asked us to demonstrate that to him by being cheerful givers. Not confident in our stuff, but confident in him. And it's a great habit to put into place. Now, back in Ecclesiastes, and we'll have some more to talk about worry and fear in light of that later on in the chapter. But in chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, he talks about the idea that there are some certainties in life, and we can live according to those certainties. There are things that we can observe and notice that do have an impact in us, and we should notice it. He says, first and foremost in verse three, if clouds are full of rain, what's the end result of a cloud being full of rain? It's going to rain. He says, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, what happens to the tree, do you think, if it falls? It's going to fall, and that's where it's going to lay. This is exactly what he says. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. There are things that you can notice all around you that you can use to plan. And he's not, you see, sometimes we can get the impression, or maybe it's just me looking at the book of Ecclesiastes so much, you can get the impression that no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But that's not the truth that God presents to us because just in these two simple verses, he clearly communicates to us that we have the ability to see those things that happen around us and maybe plan accordingly. Hey, if I know it's going to rain, maybe the days before is a good time to plant. Now, I'm not into the whole agriculture and I really don't know what I'm talking about. You know, is it going to rain? Do I plant first? If it's windy, do I not sow? But someone who is skilled with agriculture, Which probably should be all of us because I think it's a good thing that we all know how to grow food or whatever. But Solomon's point is that you can be observant to the cycles of things happening around you and it can be to your benefit. You can notice when the clouds are full of rain, they will empty themselves. So you can plan accordingly. You can plan accordingly to basic things like gravity and physics that he's talking about with a tree falling. That's where it falls. And does it make a sound? Yes, it makes a sound. You may not be there to hear it, but it still makes sound waves. So we're going to destroy that philosophical problem of does a tree fall and if no one's there, does it make a sound or whatever that is. The principles of physics are real. And you can learn from them and count on them because God has designed it to be that way. Just like he who observes the wind will not sow, obviously. I know that much about agriculture. If it is a windy day, why would you want to scatter your seed and who knows where it would end up? So you want to do it on a calm day. Just like I know that if you're going to reap a harvest, you probably don't want to do it in the middle of a rainstorm. Why? Why don't you want to do it in the middle of a rainstorm? Why do you want your crops dry? Because... Even my little bit of knowledge of agriculture will tell you if I am harvesting wet product and stacking that wet product, what's going to happen to that product? Mold. It's going to be destroyed. So, even me, a simpleton from the city, know that I don't harvest things in the middle of a snowstorm or a rainstorm. It has to be dry. I can count on those things. Those are certainties, and God presents us with those certainties so that we can indeed plan and live accordingly, even though we are not guaranteed another second of breath. Yet while we have breath, we can see the certainties of life and plan accordingly. In the next verses, I'm going to take all that away. Now you have no certainty. Verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know how the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, whether or whether both alike will be good. So it says in verse 5, that first part, beautiful illustration, We may know that a baby forms in a mother's womb through the egg and the sperm and God makes a miracle of life take place there, but we really don't know a lot about all of that. We don't know a lot about how the cells divide. We we, we, we can't reduplicate that ourselves. We have to observe it. And God fearfully and wonderfully knits that life in a womb. It's, It's a miracle. Life is a beautiful miracle. It is it, it feels impossible how this ball of earth can be spinning through the universe at astounding speeds, the right distance from the sun with the right atmosphere that life is possible here and then inside this impossible womb, God brings life and Solomon is saying, hey, you don't know the intricacies of this, you don't know all the details of this, you observe it, you see it, you're blessed by it, but you don't understand something as simple as life how it comes to be let alone what the day brings. What a way to humble us. We can observe the clouds and figure, okay, it's probably going to rain today, probably going to get sun today, probably going to dry out today, probably going to get cold today. We can predict some things, but when it comes down to it, even those observable, predictable things that we see through science and through physics, we humble ourselves before God by going, I don't even know how I got here. I don't even know how you made life. It seems impossible that it took place and so many conditions had to be perfect and still I don't know how it really happens. I know it does, but I can't recreate that of my own power, of my own ability. Even science can't recreate life. It starts with building blocks that God has already given us, but start from nothing. I'm talking about nothing, not a single atom, not a single speck of created reality Create life. Go. You can't. How does God do it? I don't know. It's really, really confusing how he does that. There's another guy in history that had a perplexing life. He had everything, beautiful family, incredible amount of wealth, and it was taken away from him. And he had some good friends, well-meaning friends, truly well-meaning friends come alongside him, and they just sat there and acknowledged the misery of what had been happening to him. And there's some conversations between these friends and this guy, and they're all throwing up their hands pretty much like, I don't know why this happened. I don't know why. I mean, this, this doesn't seem fair. And um, the whole time, this guy and his friends are kind of communicating this unfairness. One, they didn't have Solomon to, to give them guidance at this time, because Solomon would have said, yeah, life's unfair, suck it up. No one knows what today's gonna bring or tomorrow's gonna bring. Live life today for God, that's it. But they didn't have the privilege of knowing what Solomon was gonna say, so they had even something better happen in that conversation. God spoke to them. God spoke to them and he said the following. now this this is a whole uh, whole awesome series in and of itself, but we're not going there. In job chapter 38, how would you like this very first verse to be applied to you? Then Jehovah answered job out of the whirlwind and said, So he and his friends have been, gently complaining about the situation Job is in, and then God says, I'm going to speak. And his very first question to Job, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's Job's introdu- or that's God's introduction to Job. His introduction is all right. You had a lot of words. Tell you what, stand up, be a man, and answer me this. I can imagine at that moment, Job and his friends probably said, "Whoops! I probably should not have, for about thirty-six chapters, been complaining and telling you how to do your job, because God says following." Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Let's just start at the beginning. Where were you when I made the heavens? Where were you when I put the stars in its place? Where were you when I created the mountains? Where were you when I created the rivers? Where were you when I created the first grain of sand? Tell me, Job. Be a man. Where were you? I don't think Job needed any more questions. I think at that moment Job knew I'm not dealing with a man, I'm dealing with God. And there are a lot of things about God that I do not know. I don't know how he formed the world speaking, let it be, let there be light. And there was light? How does that happen? And he goes on in two chapters to ask Job, question after question after question, where were you, where were you, where were you, where were you, where were you? you?" And eventually he has to say, come on, stand up like a man again. Come on, stand up and take these questions. And one of Job's answers in chapter 40 was, behold, I am small, what shall I answer you? I, let my, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, and I will proceed no further. He has nothing to say. He realizes God is God, and I am not. I cannot pretend to understand and know God's way of doing things. And Solomon echoes that by saying, you don't really know how the spirit comes into the bones of the womb of a woman in the child or the uh, of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I think He gives us those two verses right after those verses of certainty, knowing that rain comes from clouds and when trees fall, they fall. I think he comes with this uncertainty to remind us, don't get over cocky knowing stuff. Because you may know a lot of stuff, about agriculture and planting and husbandry and all those kind of things that make the world go round. You may know a lot about manufacturing. You may know a lot about how engines work, how business works. You may know a lot about how the body itself works and functions and heals. You may know a lot about that. But don't get confident that you got it all figured out, that you know it, that somehow you are a prized possession to everyone else in your life because of all that you know and can do. The moment he gives us certainties, he takes us back to the reality that you're right. I really don't know what's going on half the time. Okay, half the time is a little generous. I don't really know what's going on most of the time. And in fact, how do the foundations of the world get laid by the voice of his power? I don't know. It is too big for me to comprehend my God. And isn't that a good place to be in? That our God is so hugely, amazingly better and more than us that we can't figure him out? Because if we could figure him out, then he's not God. If we can figure him out, he's not God. And if he's not God, then I got terrible news for you. Absolutely terrifying news for you. How are you going to deal with your sin? How are you going to make yourself right? How are you going to live a righteous and holy life? Because you have no hope. Solomon who would answer that question. You're right. When you live a life without God, ignoring that he is or figuring him out in your own mind, your life is vanity upon vanity, useless upon useless, meaningless. You're not accomplishing a thing for yourself or for others. But just as he takes away certainty with uncertainty. He gives us some understanding in verse 7 through the end of the chapter with some groundings in reality, some more certainties, you might say. It says in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. We know, we know, living here in Pueblo, that we are tremendously blessed with having 300 days of sunshine, Amen. right? I don't want a lot of people to know about that outside of Pueblo. Let them think that, oh, we're, we're run by the gangs from the east side, and, you know, we get snow because we're in Colorado. Let them think that. But the reality is, when you see the sunshine, does it not enliven your moment that sun hits you and I know that you may have to put your sunglasses on or the visor down but every time I go to church I head the east so I see the sun rising and I complain going oh it's right on my eyes I have to catch myself oh but you know what oh this feels good so much better than the midwest cloudy season of September through April, May time frame so much better than the northwest I know they have beautiful scenery as well but I don't think I could live being without sun for that long. Or as beautiful as Alaska might be, how how can you be without sun for months? Not even rising above the horizon, and all you see is just some glow. Yeah, it might be beautiful for a day, but months on end, there's a joy in being able to see the sun and the beautiful blueness of the sky shining forth. And it's not just because we find it enjoyable, but because God says this is a good thing to see, the beauty and brilliance of the light. It brings pleasure to the soul. He says in verse 8, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. That was a little convicting to me. It was convicting for this reason. At some point in my life, I began to be embarrassed about my age, right? I mean, I mean when, when, you're, when you're 10 years old, you can't wait to tell people that you're 10 and a half. You're not, you're not 10, you're 10 and a half, 10 and nine months. And, and, you, and you build up your age as something super important until you reach those milestones of I'm 13, I'm a teenager now, I'm ready to live my life, mom, dad, give me the house, I don't need you anymore. Then we get to 16 and then we want a car. Then we get to 18 and we can vote. Then we get to 21. And once we reach 21, we are an adult. And we can have, we've arrived. We can do everything that life offers except for one thing here in America. And what is that? We can't be president until 35. So maybe 35 is that magical age where we we can finally be president of the United States. But then something happens when you hit, like, 40. And at 40, you kind of go, eh, am kind of 29 and a half. Then you get to 45. I'm 31, maybe 32. Then, did you just say balding? Oh. Logan, take uh, Major Walker out and take away his mic. Ah. So I was somewhere in the 40s. And somewhere in the 40s, reaching into the 50s, you go, you know what? Yeah, 25 again, maybe 35 again. And you start acting younger on purpose because you think that that will make you younger and you start to get embarrassed about your age or you want to present yourself as younger and and more powerful and more important and more full of energy. And then you reach the age in which AARP starts to send you letters. (laughs) And your family sees it. And you can't ignore it anymore. Although I think they started sending letters to me when I turned 40. I mean, it was like really early on they started sending letters. They had some decades wrong in my birth year or whatever. I don't know what it was, but it was like, I'm 40 years old and you're sending me retirement stuff, whatever. Um, But there comes a point in which you want to present yourself as younger. And it's convicting because I have fallen trapped to that. So I am going to admit to every one of you, in light of this, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. I'm going to tell you that God has richly shined his amazing blessing upon me for 55 years. Now, now Don't applaud my 55 uh, is not a lot. It's, it's basically 35 now, but <laughs> we should be joyous of our age. But then it happens when you get to like 80, people then go, yeah, I'm, I'm 80, I'm 90, I'm 100, huge milestones. But there's a time in our lives where we get embarrassed of our age, and I don't think we need to be embarrassed of our age. God presents us with blessings each and every single year. And we should be joyous that he gives us another day, another month, another year. It's a sign of God's goodness in our life. And just when he gives us that certainty of reality, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many All that comes is vanity. He reminds us, as quick as we get super happy and excited about our age, he goes, oh, yeah? And then we die, and there's a lot more years of when we're dead than when we're alive, so don't get cocky. Wow, Solomon, are you ever just going to give us that pep talk of, yay, team, without giving us reality check at the same time? Solomon doesn't, no, because that's not his job. His job is to present us with the harsh reality of what it is like with a life without God at all. Then it doesn't matter if you're old or young, alive or dead, without God, your life is meaningless and full of vanity, full of pain, full of uncertainties, full of no hope. He continues in verse 9, Rejoice, young man, in your youth, And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So while you are young, enjoy your youth. While you are old, rejoice in your age. But in the end, remember, anything that you do, God will hold you accountable to. Including your thoughts of others. Including your attitudes towards others. Including the things that no one else will ever know about you. God will bring all of that into judgment. And with that fact, you have just two responses you'll ever have. You can only have two responses. The one response is you can say to God, I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to fool you like I fool everybody else. I'm going to hide from you what I hide from everybody else. And you can go through life ignoring the reality of God's ever watchful eye upon your thoughts, actions, and deeds. You can hide it from him or try to. Or you can live your life acknowledging that every step I take, every heart, thought, and emotion I have, I know God holds me accountable for, and there are many that would embarrass me to no end if they were let out in front of the crowd. And so before they're let out, Lord, I confess it. I confess my shortcomings. I confess my sins. I confess my thoughts. I confess my deeds. I confess them. So you can hide them or you can confess them, but they will always be revealed. And when you confess your sin, what does God have to reveal then? Nothing, because he said, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And as far as the east is from the west, I will remove your sin from you. There will be nothing for me to reveal because it's taken care of, because it's forgiven, because it's covered by the blood of my son and it washes you as clean as snow or as white as snow. So you can hide them and think you'll get away with it just like you hide it in front of others and get away with it in front of others, or you can confess it to God and finally be rid of it. I tell you, if you want a guiltless conscience, if you want your heart to be free from guilt and shame, the only way to do that is to confess it to God. Then he concludes in verse 10. Remove worry from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Remove worry from your heart. Put away pain from your body, from your youth and the dawn of life are vanity, useless. So he gives us something to do there. He tells us very clearly in that very last verse of certainties of reality that we can put away worry from our heart. And the way we put worry away from our heart and the way in which we put pain away from our body, the way we we stop all this fretting and worrying about the uselessness of life or the frailty of life or the uncertainties of life, and to put away that worry is simple. It is simple indeed to do that. And if you turn with me super quickly, really quickly, to Philippians chapter 3, Paul gives us super clarity when it comes to removing worry from our lives. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this, or actually starting in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is a key to a worry-f- worry-free heart and life and existence is when I count the cost of what Christ has given me and what value I have in Christ, everything else then loses its importance in my life and I can let go of it. I don't have to worry about money. I don't have to worry about relationships. I don't have to worry about the unknown, the uncertainties. I don't have to worry at all. If I have Christ, I have no need to worry about what happens when I die, what happens if I'm given another year or not given another year. I can be at peace with the life and responsibilities that God has given me because I have Christ. And if I have Christ, as Paul says, I have everything I need. I counted all rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Let's pray. And as we do, why don't you stand up and the band will come up and uh, let us out with the last song of worship. Father, we're grateful for holding us accountable to your word, giving us certainties, and also at the same time telling us that in this world we don't have those certainties when it comes to our relationship with you because it is founded in Christ and Christ alone. Help us, Father, to get rid of worry from our hearts and lives that we may fully hold on to you and the greatness and riches that Christ offers us through his redemption. In his name, all of God's people said, amen.